Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a sage publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. To set the stage for today's discussion, with the global cost of cybercrime expected to reach $10.5 trillion by 2025, cybersecurity has become a board-level imperative. According to the Diligent Institute survey, board members ranked cybersecurity as the most challenging issue to oversee, ahead of digital transformation, innovation, new technologies, and capital allocations. Even though boards say cybersecurity is a priority, they have a long way to go to help their organizations become resilient to cyber attacks. Recent research surveys find that by not focusing on resilience, boards fail their companies. And finally, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission plans to seek to make an example of the board of directors who are recklessly ill-prepared for cyber attacks by taking legal action against compromised companies that did not take sufficient steps to protect their customers and infrastructure from hackers. So our discussion today will focus on how informed is the board of directors to provide effective oversight as far as cybersecurity governance goes. I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Kane McGladry, who is the Field Chief Information Security Officer at Hyperproof and a senior IEEE member. Kane, welcome. Thanks for having me on the show today, Dave. So before we dive into the details, I'd like you to share with listeners some of your professional journey highlights. Sure. So I'm a former theater kid who dropped out of college when I realized that Rent wasn't just the name of a musical. But I took the skills that I'd learned at improv, as well as learning new things quickly, to get my first information security job at a government contractor. In the 25 or more years since, I've done cybersecurity consulting and executive advisory work on three continents for uh, Fortune 500 and Global 1000 companies. I've led worldwide professional services, and I'm a former CISO from a defense industrial-based manufacturing company. I also earned my CISSP, and I was made a senior member of the IEEE, the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, due to my contributions to the field of cybersecurity. And uh, today, I spend a lot of time reading law journals, regulatory findings, and really thinking about what I can do to help make people's lives better. Fantastic. Thank you again for joining me today. So we want to talk about the role of the board of directors in cybersecurity governance. And I'm referring to a 2023 global CISO survey which states that over half of the respondents believe that their board is not adequately knowledgeable to respond effectively to CISO presentations, CISO feedback. What are your thoughts as a practicing CISO? Has that been your experience? You know, it has been, and I've read several research studies in uh, in the course of getting ready for today's podcast. I'm going to combine a few here and say that I saw that one said 65% of board members believe that their organizations are at risk of a material cyber attack, but only 48% of CISOs actually share that view. 
But interestingly enough, fewer than half of board members actually regularly interact with their CISOs. And so what this to me points out is a communication gap and potential alignment issues between board members and CISOs, which is really hindering progress in in cybersecurity. And if you think about those points and the other points in that survey that you'd mentioned, you can infer that if over half of CISOs, uh, if even half of CISOs believe their board lacks the knowledge or expertise to respond effectively to cybersecurity presentations, it is going to make existing communication and alignment issues worse, which potentially affects the organization's cybersecurity posture. And that in turn leads to problems like ineffective oversight on the part of the board or misaligned priorities or just a, a communications breakdown or re- reduced resilience or strategic blind spots. And in the worst cases, organizations can be unprepared for attacks because they don't have the proper understanding and preparation. And so an organization may find itself ill-equipped to detect, stop, or mitigate the effects of a cyber attack, which can lead to ongoing financial and reputational damage. And when I used to do executive advisory, my team was sometimes called in because a CISO wanted a second opinion. But we were also called in to evaluate cybersecurity maturity when a board thought the CISO wasn't doing their job. And more often than not, that came down to a lack of consistent, meaningful communication between the CISO and their board. And that's often because the CISO had not directly tied their controls to their risks and their risks to their larger business objectives, which ultimately meant the board was being shown a a chart with all kinds of red and yellow and green lights and indicators that they had no context to understand because it wasn't footed to corporate objectives. Uh, And that is a a failure of imagination and communications on the part of those CISOs. But it's also a failure of communications on those boards to say, look, we don't understand what you're telling us. We don't know if this indicator is meaningful because you didn't give us a context clue. Absolutely. It's interesting that you talk about this apparent disconnect between the CISO and the board of directors. And the examples that you shared that speaks of lack of communication clarity. I uh, have authored a book on cybersecurity readiness, a holistic and high performance approach, and developed a framework which is anchored on three high performance security dimensions. I call them commitment preparedness, and discipline. So from a preparedness standpoint, I'm kind of surprised that organizations would not emphasize the importance of this connection, this relationship between the CISO and the board of directors, and making sure that the communication format, the communication style, the communication approach is clear to both the sides, and that we don't run into this issue that you bring up. So why is it the way it is? And again, we don't want to suggest that's the case for all companies, but in many companies, that's the situation. Uh, What do you think uh, the reason for that? I think a lot of it foots to the perception that cybersecurity was an IT problem, that it was just some technology problem that we needed to solve. And like I've, I've been doing this for over 25 years now, and I know a lot of businesses still see cybersecurity as a cost center. They don't see it as a strategic advantage, and we'll, we'll, maybe we'll talk about that more in a bit. But ultimately, it is a thing to be solved. It is a project to be completed. They don't see it as a continuous spectrum. They don't see it as a continuous process. And I think that those persistent failures of investment in it as a discipline that we've had historically are one factor to it. Another factor associated with that is where CISOs sit in an org chart. And I know that sounds like a very boring topic, but I can think of a CISO who I was just chatting with at Black Hat this year who turned down a job. They matched on salary expectations. It was you know over a million dollars in salary per year. And they matched on job expectations and they matched on culturally. And then it came to, well, they'll be reporting as the CISO to the director of IT. 
not to the CIO, not to the CEO, but they're going to report to some down-level director, and they wouldn't be offered directors and officers insurance either. So effectively, they'd only be a CISO in title and C-level executive in title only, but not in practice. And they recognized they were being hired in as a scapegoat. And I think that's a persistent problem that we've seen associated with how companies are recruiting CISOs. And then I think the final challenge that we're running into right now is that market regulators and legislators, both in the United States as well as abroad, have seen a persistent drumbeat in the news, in the media of breaches, and they are trying to correct those. Initially, they weren't very prescriptive, right? Initially, it was pretty lightweight, like PCI. I was around when we were doing PCI, punching holes through data center walls to make enclaves so that we could securely process credit cards and through Sarbanes-Oxley so that companies weren't effectively cooking the books. Um, but as we've gone on in time, those requirements are becoming far more prescriptive. When we look at something like what the uh, Security Exchange Commission in the United States, the SEC, is doing with their new requirements around 8K and 10K disclosures for breaches as well as uh, board expertise and, and exposure to cybersecurity as well as uh, the Second Amendment to New York Section 500, which is the kind of the premier financial regulatory body, uh, at least for companies based in New York, in New York or doing business in New York. I think that just they've gotten tired of it. Somebody at the SEC is unhappy. They've, they've decided, you know what? We've tried to be generous. We've tried to allow you to find your own path. We're now going to start telling you what to do because, again, this perception that, well, this isn't a risk or it's just an IT problem, this perception that a CISO actually just is some other IT person. And that's where the world that we're currently living in. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, uh, as I shared in the intro, the Australian Securities Commission plans to hold the board of directors and the senior le leadership responsible for gross negligence when it comes to cybersecurity matters. So I won't be surprised that if we see similar legislations coming down the pipe in the United States. I don't even think we need new legislation on that one. I think for any company that is currently headquartered in Delaware, the question is, when are you going to get care marked over this? Because if a board of directors is not effectively applying oversight, if they have a gross negligence there of, of not having adequate oversight, there is a possibility of an information systems claim being brought in the chancery court, and that's a bad time for everybody. And what makes me think of that is uh, there is a fairly well-known uh, airplane manufacturing company. Uh, I think we may have heard of them. I won't bother naming them. And they had some plane problems and a few plane crashes, actually, as a result. And you'd figure that a, a company that makes airplanes, you'd figure, you'd think that the board of directors would actually have oversight over airplane safety. And it comes out through the Caremark claim that was brought against them and success, successfully litigated. That wasn't on their list of things they were looking at, right? That is just, that is gross negligence. And I think that the risk that companies have, especially those in Delaware, are if you don't have board level oversight over cybersecurity, possibly generative AI, which we could also chat about briefly, you're going to get care marked at some point, and it's not going to be a good time for anybody. That's within our existing reg regulatory and legal framework. I think that we might see, you know, depending on how this SEC thing goes next year, we might see additional tightening of the screws. But I hope that organizations are, are looking at this and going, we don't want, no, nobody likes to be told what to do, right? That's not a fun place to find yourself in. And hopefully if organizations can take a proactive stance and effectively communicate how well they're burning down their risk and how well they're managing the remainder of their risk, I think that they're going to have a far better experience if they're doing cybersecurity reasonably, then if they're treating it as we've historically described, which has not led to good outcomes. You know, very true. Uh, in fact, uh, talking about being proactive, it seems like a no-brainer to me that any organization would want to empower the CISO function, make sure that the function operates as objectively and dynamically as possible, and reports directly to an external body by whatever name called, whether it's the board of directors, whether it's the audit committee, 
you know, any structure that clearly comes across as an unbiased, uninfluenced approach where the CISO team can immediately get the um, the years of the board regarding cybersecurity governance or regarding cybersecurity state of affairs. Why wouldn't an organization want to have that kind of an arrangement as opposed to, as you mentioned, treat CISO function or a CISO position as a scapegoat that, yeah, we need to have a person in this role because if something were to go wrong, we can point fingers at this person, but we will not suitably empower the person with the right kind of, you know, with the resources and with the appropriate reporting structure so they can be truly effective. That kind of surprises me. Why wouldn't organizations, it's a no-brainer because then in a court of law, it's much easier to defend a situation saying, look, we have the correct structure, we did all the right things, but despite all that, we got breached. So yes, you can blame us, but please know that it was not because of lack of effort, lack of awareness. We had gone above and beyond to empower the CISO as best as we could. Uh, Your thoughts, your reactions? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the CISO should ideally report to the CEO or another C-level executive like the chief operating officer or chief financial officer. And that really allows for a, a direct line of communications to the top-level management. And that emphasizes and underscores the importance of cybersecurity and strategic decisions. I'm also intentionally like that moves the CISO out of a CIO's reports because Cybersecurity is not an IT problem, and we've seen historically when companies give budgetary authority to a CIO over a CISO's budget, that doesn't produce good outcomes. But if we have that direct reporting to a high-level executive, that helps align cybersecurity initiatives with organizational strategy and also gives greater visibility into cybersecurity issues for the board and other executives and provides easier access to resources for cybersecurity controls. And that can, in turn, aid in closing that communications gap that I mentioned at the top of this, where there's that communications gap between a board and the CISO, where many board members don't see eye to eye with their CISOs. And then we've also seen this in the recent proposed Second Amendment to New York Section 500, where they are revising the definition of CISO. And they're saying it is a qualified individual who is responsible for overseeing and implementing the cybersecurity program, and that they should have sufficient authority and resources to manage cybersecurity risks effectively, that they have to report material cybersecurity issues, which could be things like changes to risk assessments or or significant cybersecurity events. And they're saying, well, it has to be to a senior governing body. And I love that they use the term significant because they've clarified, like not all the changes need to be reported up, but it does have to go to a governing body. So that means if an organization for some reason doesn't have a board of directors, you know what, your senior governing body, you're still expected to exercise effective oversight of cybersecurity risks and have an understanding of those issues. And they do allow in at least New York under the proposal they allow for the use of advisors, which recognizes that not all boards do have adequate information and adequate background on cybersecurity. And so sometimes they might need an external resource. But we've seen this in other recent regulatory changes as well. I think it was the safeguards rule under GLBA, which is administered by the FTC, and apologies here for the acronym SOUP, that's the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act under the Federal Trade Commission, where they had to hold off on that one, on actually implementing it until June of this year, because a lot of companies, your auto dealers, your dentists, your furniture stores, all of these companies suddenly have to have somebody in charge of their cybersecurity program. And that's going to be very foreign to them. And the reason why is they are loan originators. But again, because we've seen this persistent set of failures, regulators are saying, well, what can we do here? We can define what a person does. We can define their responsibilities. And they have become increasingly prescriptive to also try and force those board-level communications between the CISO and the information security vice president or whatever the title happens to be of the person in charge. Uh, and whatever governing body that is, whether that's uh, you know a board of directors, whether that's investors, 
They want to see that happen because they're seeing an inadequate focus on risks. And I think that's the larger problem here is we're talking about business risks. I don't believe cyber risks exist anymore. I don't. And I recognize that might be a controversial stance to take, but I'd say a cyber risk is a business risk. Cyber is just an influence. Absolutely. I have seen it being mentioned in numerous research articles. In my own work, I emphasize that cybersecurity is a business issue. It's much more than an IT issue. Organizations should be careful about slapping cybersecurity as a technical problem or a technical matter because then you're losing the bigger picture. Talking about the bigger picture, something I like to emphasize is that cybersecurity is really a strategic opportunity for organizations to showcase their capabilities to protect confidential data, strategic data, whether it is customers, whether it's their employees, or any other valuable stakeholders. If they did so and they did it well, that's a great way of marketing what they're all about. I love this positioning or pitching of cybersecurity as a strategic opportunity. I was having this discussion with a podcast guest a while back, and he entirely agreed. He said, you know, that's the mindset change that needs to happen when the senior leadership treats cybersecurity not as a problem that they have to deal with, Preferably, they would like to outsource it, not let it interfere with their day-to-day operations. Instead of that kind of a mindset, embed cybersecurity-related discussions impact in their day-to-day decision-making processes, especially when they are planning strategic initiatives. Every time an initiative is being planned, and you talked about the risks associated with those initiatives, what are the security risks? What are the implications from a security standpoint, that discussion needs to happen. That factor needs to be considered before the organization decides to go ahead with an initiative. No, nobody's suggesting that a certain initiative be or not undertaken, but we're talking about an informed decision-making process where cyber risks are given due consideration. So I think we are very aligned here. You know, another question that comes to mind And I found it interesting. Uh, I was reading in an article, they said that oftentimes the board of directors like to stay away from cybersecurity oversight related matters because they feel it's something very technical. It's beyond their level of expertise. And that is unfortunate. Cybersecurity is much more than technical. There's a lot more to it. So we want the board of directors to share their thoughts What are your thoughts? You know, I think that boards think in terms of business risk. And CISOs, unfortunately, don't often communicate in terms of business risks. CISOs often communicate uh, a technical risk, like a risk of ransomware or the risks associated with generative AI. Those aren't risks. That is not a risk. Like That's driving that communications gap. Literally how we talk as CISOs is part of what causes a lack of oversight on the part of the board because the board doesn't understand what it is that they should actually care about. And so they disengage, right? I think that boards need to be, for a a CISO to effectively communicate, it needs to be around the impact and it needs to be uh, footed in terms that everyone has agreed upon early on. One of the things that I've persistently seen and this is going to sound incredibly dumb, is the definition of the word high and the definition of the word low. Because we're all doing, many of us are doing qualitative risk management. And the problem stems very quickly if the CFO has a definition of a high impact of financial event being a million dollars, and the CEO thinks that it's $10 million and the CISO thinks that it's half a million dollars, you can't even measure your risks, right? And you would not be disappointed to hear how endemic that is, that we can still, within an organization, have those varying opinions. Risks should not be opinion-based. They shouldn't be. You should work with facts here. You should work with, here is our potential risk, 
And here is why it matters to the business. We could have a, a legal investigation, which is going to cost us X million dollars. And you could say, how many, you know, where, where is your pain threshold on that? And it's going to cause this amount of reputational harm resulting from an, a risk becoming a reality. If you start to phrase things that way, here's prick up. They, they, in the executive suite, people can understand, oh, here's what we're talking about. And when you go talk to the board, you say, look, we have this unmitigated risk of you know, a lawsuit stemming from a cyber breach, which could also result in reputational harm. Don't go to the board and say, I have a problem because they're not there to solve your problem. They want to know what you're doing about the problem. And also they want to know if it's going to materially affect the business. I think that if you go there with a problem, a solution, and a proposal, you're probably going to have a much better time. And this is one of those things as well that I think CISOs could uh, get better at is go have a cup of coffee with somebody on the board. They're not scary. They're just people like us. And go find out, like, this is one of those omissions that I saw in the prior SEC proposal. There was going to be a requirement that uh, boards have to disclose their expertise and their experience in managing cyber risk. And that was moved down to management. And I think that that's kind of a pity because to me, it was going to be a cheat code for CISOs to go figure out who to have a cup of coffee with. Um, I think now it's uh, we can just use our own like <laughs> other ways of figuring out who's the person who always asks me a, a question when I go to a board meeting. Maybe I should go talk to them off board and find out what could I be sharing with them that's going to be more meaningful and where does the rest of the board stand on this? If they can start to get that perspective, it's going to result in better outcomes. Absolutely. In fact, um, I love the idea of um, meeting up for a cup of coffee and having that communication going free of any pressure or any stress and just uh, sharing each other's points of view. And the discussion needs to be very holistic. When I think about it, you don't have to be a cybersecurity expert. If you've had business experience, if you've had senior management experience, if you understand risks, you should be in a position to ask good questions about security. Tell me, how are you preparing yourself for different types of cybersecurity threat scenarios? What is your proactive strategy? What are the different threat scenarios that you have taken into consideration? And how are you protecting yourself from those possibilities? Plus, there are many others. Uh, like I mentioned, I, uh, I'm, I'm big on creating a high-performance information security culture because if you can create that culture that shapes the mindset, then it enables the organization to stay at a certain level of security governance execution over a long period of time, as opposed to having highs and lows, to use your words, depending on who's at the top from the CISO standpoint and what kind of a relationship or what kind of a credibility they have with the other leaders. To get the organization to a steady state of cybersecurity readiness or preparedness, I would encourage listeners to take into consideration a variety of non-technical factors, which are equally important. Just to give a few examples, and this is coming out of empirical research. Um, like I said earlier, I um, have developed this commitment, preparedness, and discipline framework for cybersecurity governance. And essentially, it presents organizations with 17 success factors. Of the 17 success factors, six or seven are associated with the technical controls identified by established frameworks such as NIST, CIS, and others. But there are many other factors that the board of directors need to be aware of and need to probe further. We talked about CISO empowerment. Another important factor is how hands-on is top management? How aware are they about the vulnerabilities, about the, the strengths of the organization's security arsenal? Um, what kind of cross-functional participation is, is happening when it comes to making cybersecurity decisions? Is there an organization-wide effort led by the senior leadership team to try and create and sustain 
what I like to call a we are in it together culture. Again, going back to what you said earlier, everybody has a role to play here. Uh, you just can't outsource security to a team or a set of experts. When it comes to security awareness and training, it has to be organization wide. Everybody needs to be exposed to it. I can go on and on. I don't want to do that. But the point here is the board of directors need to be socialized, need to be educated about cybersecurity, but in a very holistic manner, not strictly by saying, okay, here are the 99 or 100 controls and have they been effectively implemented? Because that approach runs the risk of checking the box. You can check the box, but the bigger question is, are you doing it well? Yeah, we have training, but how good is, is your training? How immersive is the training? Continuous is the training? What kind of assessments are you doing to ensure the training is effective? That's the kind of commonsensical discussion that needs to happen. So that's kind of the way I look at, uh, look at cybersecurity governance from a board of directors standpoint. My next question for you, Kane, is let's say if somebody is aspiring to be on the board and offer cybersecurity insights, what kind of education and training would you recommend for that individual? Are there any resources out there that you would recommend? So I, I want to carry on. I'm going to answer the question, but I want to carry on with your point prior, because I think that if you are on the board or if you're a senior uh, senior leadership member, um, there are some questions you need to be able to ask and you need to be able to understand those responses. And I'm going to give you those questions and that will lead to why these resources are important. And the first question that I think we should all be able to ask, what's the risk to the business from a potential cybersecurity incident? And then what are we doing? And this is an interesting change. What are we doing to minimize the damage resulting from the realization of that risk. Now, 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, we would have said, what are we doing to prevent that? I don't think that's a viable narrative anymore. So what's your risk? And then what are you doing to minimize the damage from that, right? And then what are you doing? What is the organization doing to recover quickly from those consequences? Once we understand that core risk to our business, we then have to ask, what is the supply chain risk? And what are we doing so that we don't lose a day of whatever it is we do here? If, if we sell SaaS software, if we do manufacturing, if we do uh, professional services, doesn't matter. If you have a supply chain risk, what are you doing so that you're not going to have a day of production loss? And then, now if you get into the more prescriptive things, you have to ask, are we prepared to detect an attack? Because if you can't actually detect it, it you're not going to know that you have a problem. And then are you actually prepared to stop some fictional attack? Doesn't matter what, just do you even have that organizational discipline? Have you uh, retained a company to do that for you, right? Can you actually detect and stop an attack? And then what's your return to normal look like? Do you have a plan to return to normal, right? And if you get to that point and you don't know the answers to those questions or you don't know how to interpret the answers, you have to look at your board and say, okay, who do we have on the board who actually has cybersecurity expertise? And do we actually need to bring in someone additional with cybersecurity expertise to be our board member? And then, you know, part of that, it goes around personal bias, right? Are we actually bringing our own biases to these conversations to think, you know, well, we've been doing business for 30 years and we must know everything there is to ever know, right? We don't want to get caught in that trap of thinking that we can possibly know everything. So bringing in external advisors or getting an alternate perspective on it can be a really valuable ex um, exercise for a lot of boards to get context on what else is going on in the world, even if you don't add somebody new to your board. So then when you think about like, what do you need to know now, like to be able to answer those questions? Understand where cybersecurity fits in with your business strategy, right? You don't need to understand the technical bits, right? If you're a board level member, you do not need to go figure out what the heck a zero trust is, right? That's not a meaningful conversation. You need to be aware of 
how cybersecurity aligns with your business objectives and is going to affect your operational resilience. And I sincerely believe that cybersecurity today is a strategic competitive advantage. The next thing you need to figure out, what's your regulatory burden? Nobody likes it, but you know, what's your legal obligations, your contractual obligations, your regulatory obligations? That includes data privacy these days, as well as industry-specific stuff. Just uh, you know, have that understanding of what do we have to deal with here? And then I think you have to have some training on how to interpret KRIs, key risk indicators. I would push back on any CISO who puts up KRIs that can't base them uh, on a KPI, a key performance indicator. And now, again, that also presupposes the CISO has organizational alignment to know what are the KPIs? What are those things that the board that the board has set for objectives or the senior management team has set for objectives? Because if you don't have that alignment, you're just presenting garbage data to the board and they'll, you know, they're going to check out and go, I don't care how many things you blocked on the firewall. It's not really interesting to me, right? They don't have that understanding. Bonus, if you're a board member and you're like, cool, I've done all those things. That feels pretty good. Maybe try to figure out what are these cyber threats? Like what is phishing actually? But that gets into the technical bits or like, what is ransomware? Like, how does that actually work? Or what is social engineering? Or what does a data breach mean like at a technical level? But that's pretty rare. That's usually where boards and senior executives are going to bring in external expertise to get advice on those topics rather than trying to incorporate that into their organizational knowledge. Absolutely. I want to reiterate some of the things you said. The focus needs to be on recovery and resiliency. As we all know that you can be prepared, but you're not immune to attacks. So how quickly you are recovering, how safely you're recovering is a huge performance indicator. In fact, I'm reminded of a recent podcast I did with a a couple of incident response experts, and they shared a very interesting stat. They said that normally to recover from a ransomware attack, it can take between 21 days to a couple of months. However, if the organization has done its job of being proactive, being prepared, has done the various tabletop exercises, plus any other forms of drills that I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. they are more likely to come out ahead and to use your words, how normal will your operations be after experiencing a major attack? Sometimes within seven to 10 days, an organization can fully recover. So talking about recovering fully within seven to 10 days and recovering in three weeks to two months, that's a huge difference and has significant, not only dollar implications, but many other implications. So this is a very important discussion. I really appreciate the insights that you have provided or you're providing. It's interesting that you talked about the questions that the board should be asking. One of the questions that I emphasize that senior leadership should keep asking is, okay, let's say every organization with with some level of cyber governance will have monitoring strategies, will have resources that's monitoring the environment, trying to identify vulnerabilities, future threats. So the question is, what are you doing with that feedback? How quickly are you processing the feedback? Are you logging that feedback? Are you logging the rationale for the decisions you are taking based on that feedback? And I think that's a hugely useful thing to do, especially when you're kind of looking at things in hindsight and trying to understand if if you could have done anything different. You can point to the log and say, look, these are the kinds of alerts we received. This is how we reviewed it. We had a committee in place that immediately processed it. And these are the reasons why we decided not to act on some of them. So at least it reflects transparency. It reflects a true intent to take every possible action. So transparency, a real intent to protect the organization and their stakeholders, that needs to come through loud and clear. So even if the board members 
let's say, for whatever reason, they don't have the quote-unquote cybersecurity technical expertise, just being a solid social citizen with social responsibilities should be good enough for them to ask these probing questions and evaluate the responses they receive or the results that that can be shown. And yeah, means bring in a, a security expert if there's some technicalities that you're not following. So let not technological terms, terminologies, not cloud your judgment or preventing you from going down the middle and probing deeper and asking the questions and not worrying about, oh, did I ask a stupid question? You know, as a prof who's out there a lot uh, engaging with executives, I always tell my class that there are no stupid questions. And sometimes some of the best questions come from people who are not in that particular field, so to speak. So if somebody from accounting or finance or from any other field has a question on cyber or has a concern about cyber or has a recommendation about cyber governance, I think those can be very, very valuable. I think you're right. And I also want to posit that cybersecurity can now be looked at equivalent to natural disasters for a lot of conversations if people just if they need something to latch on to, to understand why this is a business problem, not a technical problem, because let's say you've, I don't know, let's say you've got manufacturing capabilities. Maybe you're at a manufacturing company, you make stuff and you have that stuff making capability in a place that has natural disasters, like, I don't know, let's say um, tornadoes. You're in a location that has tornadoes, right? So you've got facilities there. Maybe the cost was, was inexpensive to build there. You've got staff there. You could do reasonable things. You could follow the local building codes. You could make sure that your people have a place to shelter in place safely. You could do all the recommendations for people who build in locations where tornadoes happen, right? You're still going to have a tornado. And at some point, you're going to have a bad time associated with that. Now, the outcome of that tornado is twofold. First of all, you don't have manufacturing capability. Second of all, there's going to be an investigation. Now, if you say, well, what if it wasn't a tornado? It's a ransomware. Whatever. And if you don't know what a ransomware is, just let's say there's a thing out there called a ransomware. And it comes and shuts down the plant, too. What don't you have? You don't have manufacturing capability. And so when you start to think about resilience, what are you going to do to make sure you do not lose a day of operations, whether you're manufacturing capability in that area is removed by risk A, tornado, or risk B, ransomware, because the outcome to your business is the same. The second problem that you're going to run into there is what did you do? Were you reasonable? So if you're dealing with insurance folks because you had a tornado, they're going to say, well, let's see the building plans. Let's see how you actually prepared. Did your staff have like adequate shelter? Did you follow all of our best practices. And if you deal with cyber insurance folks, you're going to be asking you what will feel like the same questions. They're going to ask, well, were you following a reasonable cybersecurity framework? Did you actually have proof that you were operating your controls? And that's something that we see a lot where companies will allegedly say, well, we have multi-factor authentication on everybody. And the insurance company comes back after a material incident or breach and says, prove it, and then companies scramble because they haven't thought of how they'd actually work towards that scenario transparently. And I think that if we take these physical analogies to how companies would prepare for either insurance investigations or legal investigations or getting dragged up on the hill, which is not fun, and we apply those to cybersecurity, it's not just about transparency and being a good, uh, good corporate citizen. It's about actually being prepared to deal with all of these natural consequences of being in business. These are just things that happen. And I think that to, to move to a proactive stance, much like we've been doing all of these physical activities, we should apply that same rationale to cybersecurity. We should look at our controls. We should collect evidence. Yeah, we're doing the things we said we were going to do. We can prove it. We can test it. We can automate that, actually, because it is not fun to go do having worked with audit committees. But then we should show our board and our, our the CISO should be prepared to show the board. Here's how effectively we're managing our risks through these controls that we've actually applied, right? Not in, hey, we have a firewall. Hey, we have zero trust, whatever the heck that is. No, here are the controls. Here's how it's burning down our risk. Here is our residual risk. We're having a good time. Don't need any guidance. 
Or if you find controls, uh, a friend of mine, the CISO, had a recent firewall renewal come up, right? They had firewalls because they were afraid of data exfiltration because in their industry, that's a bad time. So they had firewalls with uh, data loss prevention. They have a bunch of empty office buildings. The only thing the firewalls today are protecting are a bunch of Wi-Fi access points. So we looked at it and said, well, this is dumb. We don't need these controls anymore. So instead of spending $50 million, that's $50 million. On a firewall renewal, it's like, yeah, you know what? Actually, let's just take some of that budget and we'll put it towards a different initiative. And the rest we'll just have as a corporate give back. You know what his board does now when he talks is he they all listen. Like he's the guy who saved the company $50 million because he had that inventory of here's my risks, here's my controls, here's what I'm doing responsibly. I can prove it daily. That's the conversation CISOs need to be having with their boards. Couldn't agree more with you. Uh, you know, as you were you know, talking about how to evaluate the consequences of the breaches from the business's survival standpoint, it brings to mind an initiative that Jack Welch of GE started in the early days of e-business. He called it uh, Destroy Your Business Initiative, DYB. And I think it applies very well to even assessing cyber capabilities and cyber risks is when you require the operating unit heads to present before their peers every quarter, what are the various risks that could destroy your operation, your product line? And that would include a discussion on cyber risks. And then the next step is, or the the question that they have to answer is, so what steps are you taking? to prevent it from happening. So this way, you are connecting everything to the business. It is a business challenge. It's a business opportunity. It's a business problem. And that makes for a healthier conversation, a conversation that everyone can connect to, can relate to, as opposed to, like you said, oh, we we, we bought this technology, we implemented here, and this is going to give us a greater MFA capability or a greater you know, defense in depth capability from a network perspective, those are all good. I mean, I'm not want to downgrade any of that. But I think if you want to connect with the board and if you want board's feedback, then we need to connect it to the top line and the bottom line or both. So either approach it from a destroy your business standpoint and or approach it from grow your business standpoint, GYB, and see how cybersecurity fits into both those discussions. And that makes for a very interesting conversation that everybody would be interested in. One more thing I want to uh, emphasize, and you mentioned it, and so important. You talked about cyber insurance. And I go back to the discussion I was having with the incident response team. We were referring to a certain research report where the finding was that more companies had cyber insurance. However, their preparedness wasn't at a desired level. So I kind of jumped to the conclusion that companies were using cyber insurance as an excuse to not be prepared. So when I kind of put it in front of these guys, they said, no, Dave, I think that's not uh, the fair way of interpreting that data. They said that from our experience, what we have found, when companies have cyber insurance, that means they have been able to check off the requirements to get the insurance and also to maintain it. So it's a good thing to try to get cyber insurance because that will force the company to go under a third-party audit. And if you ask me, any feedback is good feedback. So that kind of test of their you know, current cybersecurity state of affairs is a good thing. So absolutely, having cyber insurance, making sure that you're doing the needful to continue to be eligible for insurance, those are all important success factors. And you don't have to have very technical knowledge to ask those kinds of questions and evaluate the responses. So... Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. 
But like any good thing, uh, unfortunately, it has to come to an end. In all podcasts, I like my guests to help close the discussion with some final words. So, Kane, it's all yours. Final thoughts, please. Thank you. So I, th- I think if, if anything has come through in this conversation is that companies need to stop thinking about cybersecurity as a cost center and look at it at, as a strategic advantage and a sales enabler. And to be effective, CISOs need good relationships throughout the company. And that includes their go-to-market team, as well as they do other business leaders and their board. And CISOs really need to encourage the teams they lead to get alignment with their audit committee so that they can get that, that single view of how effectively all of their controls are operating to reduce their risks, which I'll mention is something they can do with Hyperproof, and then how CISOs can communicate their impact to their board so they're showing effectiveness. And CISOs and go-to-market teams should be really pushing for their own companies to prove via a third-party certification that they're doing security well, because that makes it easier to, it, it, it accelerates the sales cycle. It makes it easier for them to provide goods or services to their prospects. And similarly, doing cybersecurity well should help companies become trusted, enduring brands which result in higher credit ratings as an additional benefit, which is going to reduce your cost of capital. And finally, if you're interested in learning more about this, I'm Kane McGladry on LinkedIn. I'm also Kane McGladry on Twitter. And you can learn more about Hyperproof's solution for managing risk and compliance at hyperproof.io. Again, Dave, thank you so much for having me on the show today. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom, knowledge, insights. It's been truly a pleasure. Thank you again. A special thanks to Kane McGladry for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.